0: and welcome back to the CCIRA Literacy Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Molly Rao, with my co-host... Jessica Rickert. Today's guest is Beth Skelton, who's a guru of language acquisition.
1: And throughout the podcast, Beth shared numerous actionable steps that allow teachers to create effective literacy and language instruction. She recommends purposeful planning to support students and producing quality reading, writing, speaking, and listening. Listen in to find out how to leverage student assets and elevate student language success. And if you want to see more about Beth Skelton, please join us for the CCIRA 2022 Literacy Conference. All right, welcome, Beth. Would you tell us a little bit about your background?
2: Sure. Um, my name is Beth Skelton, and I have been teaching for over 32 years, which makes me old. And I um, started as a German teacher at the high school, then got my master's in teaching English to speakers of other languages and moved into ESL. At the time, it was called working with multilingual learners. And um, I've worked mainly secondary but more recently than elementary, where I also taught elementary Spanish and elementary language learners, English and German. I've also taught adult language learners. So I've taught adult German, Spanish and English. Um, So the whole time that I've been um, teaching, it's always been with language learners, but I've had the chance to be in content area classrooms as a co-teacher focused on those language learners. Um, But for the past almost 10 years now, I have been a presenter, coach, and consultant focused on helping schools um, create more equitable opportunities for all of their multilingual learners.
1: And within that, you have told me you do a lot of lesson planning development for teachers and not just in English and language arts, but across the different curriculums. So what might that look like when you're supporting teachers and doing that work?
2: So what what we're finding now is that of course it came in the 90s. There was the big wave of Every teacher is a literacy teacher or every teacher is a reading teacher. And it's definitely there now for language learners that every teacher is a language teacher. And so what I try to do is help the science teachers, the social studies teachers, math teachers, see um, where language can be taught in their curriculum. And rightly so, they are focused on the content but I'm trying to keep the balance between content and language. I'm trying to like raise the lift the balance into the language aspect of that. And that's through purposeful planning. And there are some there's some ways that I try to make that easier on teachers because I'm not asking science and social studies teachers to be linguists or to know about grammar or sentence structure, but I am asking them to think ahead of time. What is it that you want your students to say or write? So usually the productive aspect of um, language. So we'll look at text at another time. But when I, when I have them think about the end of this class or the end of the unit, what are your students going to have to say if they're doing a presentation or write if they're doing some kind of paper or poster or um, project? And then they actually write out an exemplar for themselves. And then we look at the language that's inherent in that. And you get to kind of discourse level dimensions where where you'll say, oh, this is actually a comparison type of paper, or this is a cause and effect Sort of thing that they're going to be speaking about and the teachers then start to see what are those transition phrases or what are the structures that go into creating a compare contrast in science or what is it that holds this report together And so they become kind of a language lens. They take that focus on language into their content area. And what's exciting is that WIDA in Colorado is a WIDA state. Their latest 2020 um, edition of the standards are all about this. And they will guide teachers through this same language um, lesson planning process by looking at what is the output? What is that you want? And now let's look at that mentor text and say, what kind of language do I need to teach? And maybe it's down to the vocabulary level. You know, not just big discourse, but maybe you're looking at what are the words, and not just the content-specific words in photosynthesis, right? But it's also those um, words that glue it all together: features, conditions, words that I'll see in math and science and social studies. But like, no one really teaches, right? Like, who's responsible for teaching the word feature? <laughs> So um, I'm I'm just making them aware of these are academic words that kids aren't using when they're talking with their friends. Um, they're not using them at home. Um, even my husband and I, both of us have master's degrees, and and you know our daughter has a master's degree now too. But we don't talk like that always around the kitchen table. So it's like what words are used in different settings that I'm going to have to be specific with. So we look at. The discourse, the sentence, the grammar structures, and the vocabulary um, in a lesson planning sort of framework.
0: I'm kind of excited about this because I think I say this a lot on here. This is why as a social studies and science teacher I'm podcasting for CCIRA because you are my people. Um, <laughs> so I when I started teaching um I, when I got my license, they trained us in planning using PSYOP. And so I very much started with like, okay, what are the reading tasks? What are the writing tasks? What are the speaking tasks? And I hear you talking about that. You know, you said, you know, kind of the productive, forget how you phrased it, but you know, kind of those, those products, what are the kids actually doing? Um, And I, so I, thinking about that a little bit more Um, I know you talked a lot about some of that academic language that we use as speakers and writers um and readers and I'm thinking so as you're having them once they identify some of those words what are some things that you have teachers do with those words like you know what what's their next step because Again, they're they're great at talking their content. So where do they start when they s- start bringing in vocabulary that's not content vocabulary? And how do they go about working that into their lesson? Maybe you know, what does that look like for them?
2: Oh, Molly, what a fun question. Because you're right, most social studies or science teachers are great with their content words. And they're thinking, um, if I am teaching about, um, territories and citizens and they all have their um independent areas or you know policies those words policies and territory and citizens they're going to teach those well and probably have kids get in small groups and and create policies for their little team and so they're going to act it out and and work with it and make it really clear. And and you're right. Most teachers are thinking about those. I'll call those the bolded words because in any content text, they're bolded or they're highlighted or they're the ones that have the extra link and they have the pictures that go with them. And so we're really, we're on board with that. But you're right, it's the little words or the, the um, I'll call them general academic words. Isabel Beck, who you've had at CCR or IRA, and I got to see her there, she would call those the tier two words. Those that carry from one um, content area to another, they're still academic, but they're not content specific words. So let's take the word feature since I brought it up. Um that kids need to build a concept of that word through multiple exposures in multiple contexts. So I might, if I know feature is something that I'm working on, let's take land features. There's a lesson that you hear about a lot, right? What are the land features of this, you know, peninsula? Um, so that's the context that I know they're going to need to use it for in social studies, but I might say, wow, those are some really cool features of that backpack. I see you've got Pockets on both sides and a zipper across the top. And um, this feature is really interesting to me. Could you describe what it does? So you see that I need the word wall for me as much as the students need it, because I see that those are the words that I'm gonna have to use in lots and lots of different contexts. And if the word is conditions, And it's under which conditions will this science experiment work or not work or something like that. So that is the frame in science. But I know conditions have all these different um, uses in different contexts. So maybe i go, wow, what are the conditions like out there right now, right outside? I see you guys just came in from lunch or recess or whatever it is. So what are the conditions like out there? So I am going to purposefully use conditions in multiple contexts. Because often these words are abstract and it's not like, here's a picture of conditions done, or, you know, here's a definition of the word conditions because it just morphs and changes in all of its different contexts. So that's one way is using it in different scenarios purposefully over and over. And then of course, Isabel Beck, again, mentioning her, she's like the vocab guru, um, is She has so many activities and games, like kids listening for those words, like here are three words I want you to listen for or read for, if you come across them in a text, bring them in and we'll read that in different contexts. So um, yeah, she has tons of ideas like that that are really fun and you can implement them in any content area as just on the side. Again, I'm not gonna go into depth on a lot of that because I know that science teachers and social studies teachers are grade four doing their unit of study that that's their focus, so I can't take too much time away from it. But I can say be aware, so that you're constantly thinking of how are we building all of this vocabulary through our units.
0: Okay, so now I'm going to jump off on. You talked about the word wall, and I've definitely had a word wall um, over the years. I don't right now, so I'm like, I need to make sure that comes back. But thinking to the average middle school and high school social studies and science teacher we don't have word walls. Now I know my teaching partner and I back in the day, like we set it up, we had this parent volunteer who added all kinds of pictures to our words that we put on the wall and you know it was beautiful, but that's not the norm, at least that I've seen from my colleagues in my department. So how, how do you inspire your secondary teachers who aren't used to that kind of feature in their room? There's that feature. <laughs> who aren't used to that. How do you, how do you get them to set those up? How do you kind of coach them through that process? Because you know, I, I can hear some of them going, I don't do bullets and boards. I set it up once and I never touch it again. I don't want to do this. So how does that, how does that piece work?
2: That's a great question, Molly. And secondary is a different animal. I might have three different preps and three different classes coming through. So how do I use the real estate, my wall real estate in the best possible way? And I'm gonna look at what are the most effective things for supporting instruction and learning that I can use that very valuable real estate for? And so I'm gonna take a a critical lens on those classrooms for teachers that say, I don't have space. Well, you really only need a strip You know because you're not leaving the words up for more than the unit so let's say it's a month long or a six week unit you need one for each of your three classes you need a strip the second one is like i don't take time on the weekends to do bulletin boards i'm not asking you to because the students are going to learn more and it's less work for you if they are doing the word walls so day one of the unit on photosynthesis I've got my key vocabulary that came up on day one. And I might know that by the end of the unit, we're gonna have 25 key words that really drive this unit. And they're both content and like general academic. So I've chosen those. And I know that there are 25 kids in my class. So everyone's going to do it once, but they get to sign up. So here's how I, honestly, this is how I ran it. At the end of the class period, I was writing the words on the board sloppily as they came up. And I might do a quick sketch and I just really quickly write it up and I go, Hey, I see that I've got five words here, sign up who's doing um, chlorophyll who's got photosynthesis who's got and they'll sign up they're done for the unit, their job is to create a beautiful word wall word with a visual. They come in the next day and it's a beautiful review because now they show their word, they describe it, they tell why this picture represents that word. And then boom, all I have to do is stick it on the wall. So I give them the paper. I know how much paper or space I need because I have 25 to 30 words, that's it for my whole unit. Can't do much more than that anyway, it's just overwhelming. So I have to really focus in on what are my key words. And then each day as I'm sloppily writing on the board, I go at the end, I have three minutes at the end, I go, oh, guys, sign up. Yep, I noticed that you six kids haven't done any word yet. Do you wanna take, which one of these do you want? So there's choice, there's voice, but everyone will do a word by the end of the unit. Zero prep on my part, right? I'm just taking notes on the board. At the end, I highlight those keywords that I know I want on my word wall. They are building the word wall as we go. It is personalized and it's super supportive for everyone in the class. And what's fascinating is when they come in with a picture that I would never have chosen for that word, right? And they're describing to me why this is feature. Like, wow. That gives me a whole new look at that word feature. I like it. Let's put it up there, you know, and somebody'll go, "I don't like that picture." Good, bring a different one tomorrow, right? We'll add it. We'll add it to the wall. Like you are welcome to do that. Whatever supports your learning. So I'm I'm like, turn things over to the students. More learning, less work for the teacher. More learning for the students. It's kind of a motto. And and with secondary teachers, with three, four preps, you've got to make it manageable. And then end of the unit, we celebrate. Those words come down. I've got that whole um, strip of my wall ready for the next unit in that group, in that class. So that's one way of managing it. And it's not it's not a mandatory thing. A lot of teachers have students do their own kind of word wall in their notebooks. But like I said, if I'm not seeing those words up there, I probably won't be using them as much as I need to. So it's as much for me as it is for the students. But I can just like if it's on the wall, I can point to it. Remember, and that visual brings it back. They'll connect the word to the student who brought in the poster, and so now you've built in a review right from the beginning because they, they brought their word in. We started the day with what we
0: ended with yesterday. That's beautiful. Teachers will love you. They'll be like, yes, you just made this doable. So happy. And like you said, the kids are doing the work. So they're doing the thinking and the processing. I find when kids have to choose visuals, there's so much good processing that goes into that. They know those words so much better. Um. Jessica, do you have any questions before I jump in with more?
1: Well, I just wanted to comment too, like you're talking about, you're a secondary person, but this could relate to elementary too. I a lot of elementary teachers really use their word walls for just sight words, but this is a perfect thing to use for those transition words. Like, I love that idea because I do think, especially coming from elementary, we focus on sight words for reading and the bold words for science and social studies, but even if they're not English, I mean, we're all English language learners. And so all kids could benefit from these in-between words. And, you know, depending on like grade level you are, the kids can be absolutely doing that. Even kindergarten kids with a little support do need to interact and can do that. So I love that idea for all ages.
2: Yeah, and Jessica, what you're getting at too is that the word wall is not static. It's interactive and there's a lot out there on interactive word walls. And I actually wrote a whole blog called working with words off the wall. So (laughs) how do I get them to be manipulatives? How do I get them to be things I can play with, work with, um, interact with? And that's another nice thing Molly is when the kids bring in those papers and if I give them an eight by 11, again, zero prep, here's your eight by 11 copy paper, right? Bring it back. so if I have 25 of them and we're doing the unit review, every student can have one. And now we can do those interactive like Spencer Kagan cooperative learning strategies like I've got this word. You've got another word. I describe mine to you. You describe yours to me. We trade and now I go on to the other person, but I've got a new word or I'm quizzing you about my word and you're quizzing me about my, um, your word. So there's different ways to play with them once they become manipulatives and we take them literally off the wall to do these kinds of games
0: all right so now moving on from that piece of it you said you had teachers partly to identify some of the words that they're going to use and teach you had them write an exemplar what does the process of that look like because Again, I know some of my colleagues who are like, I am not a writer. I am not comfortable being a writer. So how do you walk teachers through that?
2: So let's let's take an example. I start small, first of all. Most teachers are now familiar with the concept of an exit ticket. And that exit ticket, I'll put in quotation marks, could just be a turn and talk, where you're giving the students a prompt, where they're somehow bringing together all of the learning of that lesson and they're sharing what they know and and the teacher is formatively assessing as they walk around. Or the exit ticket could be writing and there's a prompt and they ask students to write. And that prompt could be something like, explain how you solved the problem or justify your answer on this if it's math, okay? Or, Describe the key features of X landform. Or you see where I'm going with this. So it's usually what we'll call in my world a language function word. It's describe, explain, justify, um, argue that, state. It's those kinds of words um, that, that create more language than just a one word response, Okay. So that's common for teachers already. The the tweak that they need is, is rather than a question, I usually have them start with one of those function words. Like, this is what I'd like you to do is to explain X, Y, or Z. All right, because this is an exit ticket, and we know how it is in secondary class. (laughs) We're closing class and I have a whopping five minutes to get those exit tickets, if I'm lucky, Um, if I remember before the bell rings. So honestly, it's not a big prompt. It's not a full page paper. This is a quick prompt. And so what I tell teachers is look, you're only gonna give your kids five minutes at the end of class today anyway, right? So if your kids can write it in five minutes, you can write it in two could you please write your model response to your own prompt so that I know as the language teacher, the specialist that's coming in to support the students or to be your co-teacher or to help the kids in, in my class that I have with them, I need to know what that looks like because I'm not a 10th grade science teacher, which is now abundantly clear as you hear me struggling for words for different, you know, units. So, I am not that specialist. You are, and I need to see how a scientist would write this answer to this prompt. So if you could do that for me, it should take you two minutes, three minutes max, right? So again, it's very short, very quick. Now, as a language person, I can help you look at what is the language in that. Um, And what's wonderful to do with this is um, in teams. So there's a ninth grade team of everyone is doing physical science and they're all working on the rock cycle, and they come up with an end of the week kind of exit ticket, and they want to see, are the kids getting it? Do they understand how metamorphic rocks form? Um, Something to that effect, right? So they would um, come up with the same prompt, they give the same prompt, every one of them writes their own response to that prompt, and you'll get three completely different answers, which is fine, because you want it to be open enough that it's allows for the students to show what they know but what you're analyzing in all of those again is did everyone write the same kinds of structures then I know what I need to teach and that leads to possibly a sentence frame that might support students who need it that leads to wow all of us used temperature and pressure we better make sure we're talking temperature and pressure when we're we're dealing with metamorphic rock um, so that those key concepts are linked to metamorphic rock that whatever they they just start to realize the linkages that go. It's not just metamorphic rock, but some terms that go with it because kids are describing. Um, a lot of times teachers will take a choice and they'll say choose one of the rock types or choose one of the layers of the atmosphere or choose whatever the content is, and explain how or. Um, show or demonstrate something to that effect where they're getting at language. Anyway, they're all different contents because the kids are choosing differently, but they can analyze it for the types of words, the types of sentence structures. Does that help, Molly? So it's fairly quick. It's end of the unit, end of the lesson. um, And it's not that big final paper. It's shorter chunks. And it just gives a starting point. And it's honestly the way that I was able to student or co-teach in so many different classrooms. I would just say, hey, what do you want them to be able to do at the end of the lesson? Do you mind writing that out? Like, what would it sound like if they did it really, really well? I'm not the historian here. I'm not sure how to put that together. But going in, knowing that this is what the expectation is, I can sure make sure that kind of language is getting out on the board or in the supports.
0: No, that answer that answer was perfect. I even wrote down some steps that I'm going to put in the notes when I, you know, type this up and publish it. Um, so very clear. So you were talking a little bit about sentence frames, and I'm hoping, you know, with some of the new requirements that teachers have for some cultural diversity training and some ELL training, that that's familiar to everyone. But on the off chance that someone has missed somewhere along the lines, what a sentence frame is. Can you kind of describe that? And, you know, we have a lot of shiny new teachers who are interested in CCIRA. And so, you know, their background knowledge is a lot smaller too. So can you kind of describe a sentence frame or maybe give some examples to help some of those people who maybe don't know what we're talking about kind of cue into what we mean by that?
2: Sure, let's take one that would be um, for, higher level students to so give as an example. But the bottom line is a sentence frame is a structured pattern that helps students put their language into a more complex sentence than they might be able to do without that support. So I'll give you an, an example of a counter argument sentence frame. So let's say the students are um, giving evidence, they they have their claim, and this can be at, at second grade or third grade. And if you're familiar with Jeff Swears and his website um, on academic language, he has video clips of students doing this. And student A is arguing that we should not be getting pizza for reading because you're teaching kids that you have to be bribed to read and that pizza's junk food and now we're creating overweight kids. So one kid is arguing that pizza's bad for reading. And the other student is arguing that pizza is great motivation for reading and we should have pizza parties. So the two of them go back and forth and back and forth arguing their sides. But what we need is somehow this structure that shows how I'm going to acknowledge your side, but then counter it. And that's this This is a much more advanced skill, is linking into a counterclaim. So a sentence frame that the teacher, after she's listening to the students, just go back and forth, back and forth. My idea is, and the other one, my idea is, my idea, and there's no linking, right? They're just saying their list of evidence and their reasoning. So instead, the teacher might go to the board and and write this frame, even though blank, comma, I still think da-da-da-da-da. So even though pizza may motivate some students, I still think pizza is not a good idea for encouraging reading because it is junk food and reading in itself is a joy. Okay, So the student is combining, I'm gonna acknowledge what you said and I'm gonna counter it with other evidence. What you've just done there, is taken a student, and this is language levels, WIDA levels. You've just taken a student who is a solid three with their claim, like just their statement. We should not eat pizza. <laughs> pizza for reading is bad. Like that's a that's a solid level three in the WIDA world for language learners. A four would be like I don't think we should eat pizza because da, 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 da. But bam, if you can link it with those um extended complex sentences with a independent and a dependent clause using even though you are just moving this student into the category where we can start to exit them from the program and look at them as no longer in the English language acquisition program. And the interesting thing is, is that most of our home language English learners can benefit from that kind of frame as well. And that kind of encouragement you guys are kind of just staying right in your lane of this is my idea, my idea, my idea. But you know what really helps an argument is when you acknowledge what the other person said and then counter it. And here's how you can acknowledge that, right? Although, even though, right? Does that help on what a frame is?
0: Yes, I think that was beautiful. And I think that gives us a little bit of a transition. So, you know, we've done done this nice flow a little bit. We talked about some vocabulary. We talked about, you know, writing and kind of how teachers come up with some exemplars. And now we're moving into that spoken language piece a little bit, um, which I like because I love to get kids talking. And I actually like that's right where my seventh graders are language wise. Like they really need help going, okay, you need to acknowledge that before you, you know, make your point. Um, So they work on that all the time. Although I showed them a video of some second graders that can do that. I said, these kids are really smart. And I said, no, 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 they've just learned it. You haven't yet. You just have to learn it. Um, And so, you know, I think that's important for all of us as teachers to know, you know, all of our kids can do this. We just have to give them the structures to, you know, scaffold that and build those skills over time. Um, But since we've kind of jumped around a little bit, we've talked about speaking, we've talked about vocabulary. We haven't talked as much about reading. Um, So do you have some specific supports that you help teachers develop to guide their students as readers and to help their students as readers when they're tackling, Some of those difficult content content texts, I think that's a challenge. Sometimes, you know, we we know, you know, again, we know about the bold content words, but how do we tackle reading in different ways? How do we help kids work through, you know, at any level, from small to big, work through some challenging text?
2: That's great. And and it's really where the field is going is making sure that our students can access grade level and and complex text. Now, there's always the students that are newcomers, they're level one in in language acquisition, level two, they're going to need some truly modified or simplified text. But by the time our students have been with us and they're at a level three in reading, a level four in reading, they need exposure to and support with accessing those grade level texts. And just like you said, Molly, they can. So there are several things that I'm really um, super excited about when it comes to supporting kids with reading. And I'm gonna focus on that kind of solid intermediate reader. This is a student who can decode already. I'm not talking about like what's different about teaching reading to language learners at the K-2 level, but students who can decode. But as Chris Tovani's book uh, from, I think it's 2011 says, I read it, but I don't get it. Um, That's the group that I'm talking about. They they can decode, but they're not comprehending. And I rely a lot on her work um, in that book as well. So there's some things that I would recommend. Um, First is we're definitely going to build the field or the background knowledge. So students have to know what they're entering. And that could come from a quick video clip or a picture and a see think wonder, which is a visible thinking routine from Harvard Project Zero, where students are just, what do you see and notice in this picture? What do you think about it? So we're making inferences. We're asking questions about what's going on. They're building curiosity and interest in the unit. And that is all from one photo. And that might be the first 15 minutes of a launch of a new text. And it could be content text. It could be um, a novel. So, once I have that launch and I have some background knowledge built, then depending on the, the language level of my students, I may want to what's called engineer that text. And this is a term that Aida Valki and um, Andrea Honigsfeld have used recently. And it, what it basically means is you do not change the structure of the sentences, you don't change the text. Um, To modify how it's written, you amplify it. And what that means is that you're going to amplify maybe with an extra visual right where it is not at the bottom of the page like where does this visual go how does it connect to anything I just read but a visual right there in the text or next to it. You might chunk the text more than it already is. So a nonfiction text, I might take each paragraph and write a guiding question at the top of that paragraph. So I'm amplifying the text. I might translate into the home languages into my, in my classroom, those key words that are just, they're really tricky, but you need them to understand the text. And I'm just gonna put in parentheses right after that Um, a couple of translation words, right? I might change words um, into easier to use. So the word myth might become story, just in frame. I'm not changing the text, I'm adding it. So I'm amplifying, not changing. So what they're finding is with amplified text, this engineered text, students can read, meaning comprehend much higher levels then we would say is their lexile, quote unquote, lexile level. They're actually able to comprehend because I've built the comprehend, I've built the background, then I'm giving them support in the text itself. And then once they have that engineered text, I would say first couple of, you know, first exposures, maybe it's reading with a partner. And we're going to stop after every paragraph and either answer that question at the top of the paragraph, or my partner's going to summarize, or I'm going to interact after every paragraph. And that alone can be a huge support. So one of my long-term English learners, it was classified as long-term English learner in 11th grade. Um, I introduced this partner reading and, and asked him how he liked it. And he says, well, it takes a lot longer, but at least I understand. <laughs> so, and, it, and I didn't change the text at all. I didn't add extra pictures. I didn't translate anything. We just talked about every paragraph and he was able to read it like, pronounce it and decode it but he just needed that processing chunk by chunk by chunk and I said you know what you can do this now on your own I don't want to do any strategy that isn't um empowering students to do it on their own they have to be able to like I own this so I'm like hey so you read a paragraph what are you going to do I'm going to ask myself a question about it great (laughs) oh I'm going to do a quick summary perfect And um, he actually did very, very well on the International Baccalaureate exams the following year, but that was his strategy to get through. So maybe that's one, they've partner read, you had your see think wonder, you engineered the text a little bit, they partner read. And then you can do a whole bunch of great strategies that like Ellen Keene, who comes to CCIRA all the time, she um, talks about Smokey Daniels uses these strategies as well. These are all people that come to CCIRA and they're fabulous. And those would be any of the Harvard project zero visible thinking routines. And one that I just love is the word phrase and sentence. And again, these are zero prep teachers, listen zero prep, no cutting up anything for this, right? All you do is ask the students to go back into the text and find one word that just captured their attention. And then we talk about why that word captured their attention and through each of the words that the kids are giving, we're getting more insight into the text. And then they find a meaningful phrase for that passage. And a teacher that just did this recently in um, I think it was a seventh grade social studies class, she wrote, we never got past phrase because the whole class period, we talked about all those great phrases and the conversation was so rich and the kids were getting so much out of the text that we never got to sentence and that was fine. And she said, I've never seen the comprehension so high. So a lot of it is what many of the people that I always visit, like Donald Miller or Reggie Rauman, it's about slowing down and really enjoying that text and, and finding the, the richness of it. Now, I can't do this whole process that I just gave you with a novel. I can't do the whole process with an article of 15 pages or a whole chapter in the social studies book, but I can do that process with one page. And it teaches the students those strategies that they can then use on their own when they're reading independently. Is that the kind of thing you were looking for, Molly?
0: Absolutely, I'm not looking for anything. <laughs> I'm looking to learn, Beth. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, oh, now I, I just forgot it. I, ha- I had another question for you. I always have questions in case you can't tell. I, I just live in question mode all the time. Um, oh, was it? Oh, so as you're talking through this, I can tell. You know, this is something that you're making very explicit to students. Like, this is the thinking strategy that we're using right now. Um, is there? And I've I've already jotted down resources and places that I'll link in into the notes for anybody who listens who wants those. Um, and so I know you've said, you know, the visible thinking routines. Are there any other resources that maybe you haven't mentioned that are good go-tos for teachers who are like, okay, what are these explicit things that I need to talk to my kids about? You know, some resources that they can look through and kind of build into their practice. Or is that like, you know, is the
2: There are there are so many great ones out there for K-8 teachers who are working with language learners in their Grade level and content area classrooms. One that I can absolutely recommend because it's a beautiful book and super accessible with great examples is Andrea Honigsfeld's book called Growing Language and Literacy. And she does it by level. So if you have students who are newcomers or beginners in English, um, and you're a second grade teacher or a seventh grade teacher, you can go to the chapter around how to work with newcomers or beginners in your classroom. And every page pops because there are visuals of the teacher's work or students work, or you see pictures of the students doing the strategies in the book. So that's a really beautiful one that covers all the levels and in the state of Colorado right now, the, the vast majority of our students are actually in that intermediate kind of level three and four range. Um, we have fewer, it depends on the district and the school of course, but the vast majority of the students in our state are in the intermediate range. And so you can spend a lot of time in chapters three, four, and five with levels three, four, and five. <laughs> and it is one activity, idea, strategy after another. and. I have created a spreadsheet. I asked the author, Andrea Honigsfeld, I said, hey, did you spreadsheet this book like when you wrote it? And she's like, no, what do you mean? And I sent her what I, what as I was reading, I was creating this document of here are the strategies for level one with the links to all of the, um, she has tech links as well, like websites and you know, online resources. And I send it to her and she goes, Oh my God, that's great. Do it for all the chapters. So I can share that with anyone. If you put my email in there and I can, it's a, it's just a Google doc that has basically the whole book is on five pages of spreadsheets and none of it's my words. It's just bullet points of things and, and teachers that I've shared it with, they bring it out during planning. And if it's broken into the four language domains. So there's what do you do for reading to support? What do you do for writing to support? And what do you do for oracy, listening and speaking? So all those categories are there. She combines oracy, listening and speaking as one. And so by level, by language domain, I need help with writing, I need help with listening, I need help with reading. All of that is on like a page for each grade, for each level, um, language level, not grade level.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. I'm going to have, I have, I have a new book to add to my list. (laughs) It's a beautiful one.
1: Well, and that's what I hear you saying is you're trying, all of these resources are really trying to lessen the load for teachers, but it's not going to Pinterest or teachers pay teachers. It's really using these research-based strategies to really target. So you've got to know where your kids are in their different levels in the different ranges and then target and be intentional in your planning using these resources. But it's a quick and easy thing to do once you know and once you're intentional about that.
2: Jessica, I think so. And it's also about how do I make sure that all the students are really doing my third grade content and my third grade, I can help them be successful with whatever it is I'm learning at that grade level, Um, if I use some of these strategies rather than another worksheet, but it's just what everyone is doing, but I'm gonna give you those scaffold supports. And and that's what some of these things will provide for the teachers. And that's that intentional planning that I started with is how am I gonna get the students to this end? And will a newcomer be able to use the, even though blah, 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 all the way through, probably not, but that's okay. Can they get, can they state a claim and can they show me their evidence? Absolutely. And when I say show evidence, it might be a picture that here is my evidence, but I can state a claim. I think blank. Yeah. And then here's my evidence. So I I can still get them at high levels of thinking, even though they have um, less amount of English language, and we can use home language as well to support.
0: And I think this is, we're, we're getting towards the end. So this is going to have to be one of my last questions for you. But we've done a lot of talking about like our level three and four students, which like you said, that's most of the students that we have in Colorado. Um, but I had my very first newcomer this last year. He um, was from Micronesia. And I was not, you know, I was, I was, I had some skills, like, you know, I'd had some training in that. What are your maybe top three pieces of advice for teachers who are trying to help their newcomers in their classrooms? What can they do? Because we hate to sit there and be like, I don't know what to do for you, you're so sweet, but I'm not equipped
3: for this, so what can we
0: do?
2: Well, you are equipped and they can learn and that's all exciting and great. And then I would say leverage every asset. So find out what that student can do. And part of that is, first of all, home language. Um, What is the home language? Are they literate in the home language already or not? Do they have a home language support at home? Does the person at home that speaks that language with them, do they have any English that they can be a broker? Is there anyone in the community that can start to broker that? Google is amazing. We can get anything translated now, at least to a certain level of accuracy. It's not perfect, but any language that the students are speaking um, so we can use that if they have some reading ability in their home language if not we have the google oral where you can translate it and then have the google say it to the student so even if they're not yet literate in their home language we can have it say so there's so much now um, versus when i started doing this in 1990 <laughs> teaching english language learners and i had uh 15 different languages in my classroom and you know, Urdu to um, Spanish, I I had the whole group and and we didn't have the Insta Google. So um, it was a little bit different at the time. Visuals are huge, hands-on activities are huge. Um, The vast majority of our students in Colorado are Spanish speakers, yours was not, but again, integrating them into small group instruction right away, um, they, They can use their iPad if the school gives out iPads or Chromebooks or whatever you have for the tech for the students, so they can learn how to type in, if they're at that level and they have literacy, what they want to say. Um, I had a kindergartner in a school that knew how to use his iPad. He would speak in Korean, and then it would come out in English to me. I would speak back to him in English and it would go back to Korean to him. And we had this fabulous conversation. So there is no barrier anymore because of the amazing tech that we have that is the initial support because we wanna include those kids. We wanna make sure that they are part of the class of the content. And if you are using hands-on visual activities and experiences, they will come right along with you. And that initial phase two to six months and you are going to see a change in already how quickly those students are integrating and starting to say hi how are you (laughs) like
0: very very quickly so that's exciting (laughs) all right and so now it's unless Jessica has any final questions no all right time for the final question who are some of your educational heroes or you know one person who has really impacted your practice as a professional and kind of where you've gone through your career?
2: Oh, I have to take a deep breath because the person that jumps to mind, it's going to seem hokey. Now, I've mentioned many of my heroes throughout the podcast already that people that have come to CCIRA um, over time, and I, it's my bookshelf, you know, my professional bookshelf, but the person that has impacted me the most is my mother. And uh, she was a kindergarten, first grade teacher for 32 years. And when I spoke at her funeral, I, um, I said that she taught over a thousand children to read, and no one ever left her classroom, whether it was kinder or first grade, not being able to read. And my whole growing up years, she would always say, I'm just a teacher. And I um, said at the funeral, if that's just a teacher, then that's just incredible. What she has done for the world is a thousand people um, learning to read. And after at her funeral afterward, people would come up to me and, and say, your mom taught me to read. And I like I don't even remember my first grade teacher, but they remembered her teaching them to read. So. She's impacted me in so many different ways. Um, I, I think I went into education because I grew up in her classroom. Um, I, When I was doing my master's degree, I would call her and say, Mom, I just learned about this great strategy. And, and she'd say, oh, tell me about it. And I would go on about how this is so cool and this is this new thing. And she would listen respectfully. And then she would say, oh, is that what they're calling it now? <laughs> so... I think it just shows like there is not much new under the sun. And as I was getting ready to talk to you guys, I pulled off on my bookshelf one of Reggie Routman's books. It's called Transitions, and it's from um, the 80s, I think. And it's got a whole dedication in, in the front from my mom, and it's about how she is reading this book. Um, to get more ideas. And she says, I've already started down this path, but writing is the place to start. And I feel of reading tons of good books. And um, it's from August, 1990. (laughs) And it's one of the books that I kept from my mom's shelf. So, you know, like her professional library, now into my professional library, into people that became my edge of heroes. And I think at the time I didn't even know who the author was. And now somebody that I go and visit and see. So thanks for letting me be sentimental, but
0: that's the truth. That's fantastic. I think Jessica and I both, and I both understand and support that because both of our mothers are teachers. So (laughs) yeah, three (laughs) of us here. You got me all teared up now. I know I was tearing (laughs) up too. And I'm not a crier. I just, today was my last day at the building that I've been at for 11 years. And my partner was like, why are you not crying? And I'm like, cause you're the crier, I don't cry. So now we'll let you cry Molly. Yeah, now I'm gonna cry here. All All
1: right, well Beth, this has been amazing. Both Molly and I have learned so much from you in a very, very short time. And we're so excited to share all of your resources with others. I know that this is a huge topic that people are needing for their recertification for their license. And so, and not only that, but just We have a lot of kids that need these supports. And so we're very excited that you were on here. We're excited to actually see you in person for CCIRA Conference 2022. So thank you so much for joining us today.
0: I'm finding all of Beth's sessions and going to all of them, so.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you guys so much. What a pleasure. And uh, thank you for running CCIRA.
3: It is a fabulous organization. Thanks for listening to CCIRA Literacy Conversations podcast. To find out more about CCIRA, go to CCIRA.org. On CCIRA.org, you can join as a member or find great resources like our professional development blog, which posts every Tuesday and has a variety of guest writers on an awesome selection of topics. CCIRA is a professional organization of educators and community members dedicated to the promotion and advancement of literacy. We also have a Twitter account at Colorado Reading. You can find us on Instagram at CCIRA underscore Colorado Reading. Or you can find us on Facebook, where we also have a members-only group that we're trying to build. And our Facebook account is CCIRA Colorado Reading. We'd love to hear more from you. And again, if you're looking for new content, please send any questions or things you'd be interested in seeing from CCIRA to CCIRAvideo at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and have a great week.